Um, I do because, you know, this combined services, this is our, uh, technically our, our Thanksgiving Sunday. I wanted to say happy Thanksgiving to you, but as soon as I thought, I'm going to say happy Thanksgiving to them, I followed up with that, that phrase probably feels a little trite or a little flippant for a lot of the people in the room, maybe everybody. It tends to conjure, you know, turkey and mashed potatoes and NFL. Uh, and it's just a loaded, Thanksgiving in general is a loaded reality. And certainly for a lot of us in our families, in our extended families, happy Thanksgiving can, can, can feel a little bit tinny relative to the actual experience. This week I found out in my extended, extended family that there was a marital separation, that there was uh, an unplanned pregnancy, and in my, my family of origin, we're dealing with cancer. Two weeks, in two weeks, one of my siblings is about to, to have surgery for cancer and all the ramifications that come with cancer. And what the holidays do, what Thanksgiving does, is it, it kind of brings that into starker contrast. It brings, it amplifies the reality of the brokenness of our lives and of our families. And so, uh, Happy Thanksgiving doesn't exactly cut it. So I wanted to give you uh, 1 Thessalonians. This isn't what the sermon is on. This is just on the house. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Paul, the Apostle Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, he says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And the reason I say that is not to like guilt you and to be like, be thankful for the cancer in your life or whatever it is. Uh, the reason I say that to you is, is as a comfort. Paul knew the circumstances in his own life and what was going on in the church and just in the brokenness of the world. And we'll talk about that in just in a little while more in depth. But when he says give thanks in all circumstances, he realizes that we of all people have a reason to give thanks because what God is doing is piecing together a mosaic of his glory and your joy, if you're a child of his, and your joy that will forever swallow up all of the pains that you're dealing with right now. That's what it means to be his child. That's what it means to be his child in a broken family is that, that the, this light and momentary affliction will achieve for you an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs all of it. He says in Romans 8, 18, I'm convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So it's just a little while and, and he will, and you'll see the, the, the little ugly pieces pieced together into a beautiful mosaic of his glory and, and you will say something like, oh, I didn't know it was going to be so sweet. Uh, so I, I wish that the NFL would say give thanks in all circumstances or, you know, like that would be our, our slogan for Thanksgiving. But it is, it's a call, I think a comforting call from the Apostle Paul and ultimately from God. Now, as we turn our attention to the sermon, uh, there's, there is in your outline, in your bulletin, there should be a quote there from a guy named Justin Whitmell Early. Uh, he wrote a book called The Common Rule that we've been going through as pastors and directors, uh, basically on how to develop habits in your life that filters what, you, what input comes into your life and how you might be able to enjoy Jesus and love your neighbor better. And one of the quotes in the book says this, it says, it isn't enough to hear truth in words, you have to feel truth in your soul. And he's talking about how, how we're bombarded constantly with different forms of media and different words and TED Talks and podcasts and sermons and YouTube videos and just all sorts of verbal messages coming at us. 
and how sometimes we become numb unless we curate those things, unless we decide what we're going to listen to. But it just stuck out to me really poignantly. He said, it isn't enough to hear truth in words. You have to feel truth in your soul. So we're about to walk through five verses of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, as well as a lot of 1 Peter. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to 1 Peter. We're going to be jumping all over it. Uh, but you can hear those five verses and you can hopefully get a decent understanding of what's going on in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17, but it's just not enough. That's not what you were made for, is simply to understand. What you're made for is for the Spirit of God to meet you in the things you understand and that your zeal and your rejoicing and your conviction and your repentance and the receiving of mercy and the relief and all of those things would come together and, and the magnitude of the reality that's spoken or read would meet the experience of your emotions. Not that we would depend on our emotions as the thing that commends us to God, but that's a normative experience of what it is to be a believer. It's not enough to hear the truth in words. You have to feel the truth in your soul. And what that means is that the sermon should be something of an emotional wrestling match for you. It doesn't mean that you would simply take it and go, hmm, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense. I filled up my blanks, let's go home. It means that you wrestle internally with all of those things. You're begging God, would you come and meet me? Would you help me to feel the things on the page? Help me to feel how weighty eternity is. Help me to feel what it is to be in exile. Help me to feel those things and wrestle with those things. And ultimately, that's why we pray. So let's go ahead and pray with me and we'll, we'll move toward the text. Lord, I know and I need to know more that I can't simply grit my teeth into feeling the things I ought to feel about the truth of your gospel. Uh, nor can I ultimately, by my own brain, understand it. And that's true of all of us in here. So we surrender ourselves to you and ask that you would help our zeal to correspond to the truth of your word, our joy to meet us in the gospel, our mourning to coincide with what we should mourn about, that our heart would break for the things that break your heart, you would help us now to wrestle, keep us attentive, uh, and, and through what we learn and what we feel, would you shift and transform the trajectories of our lives? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there is an outline in your bulletin. It has blanks in it. Uh, I did not give you an answer key. That was on purpose. I don't want you to cheat uh, and jump ahead. I would like you to try and follow along. I missed some blanks in the first service. A lady came up to me afterwards boldly, and I appreciate that. And she said, hey, I didn't get these blanks. I told them to her. If you would like to do this after the service, go ahead. I'd love to give you those blanks if I miss them. Hopefully, if you miss a blank, it doesn't end the whole sermon for you. Maybe you're very put together like that. Come talk to me. Um, but the outline's in the bulletin. And like I say, I'm going to be all over First Peter. Uh, I want you to get and feel the gist of First Peter 3, 13 to 17. I would like to get you out of here at a reasonable time. The point of your, your day at church is not to get home as close to the lunch hour as you can. The point of your day at church is to worship and be transformed. Okay, so settle in. Be attentive together. Here we go. Uh, before we read verses 13 to 17, there are two big assumptions about the audience in First Peter that I want to make sure we understand. If you're, not a, if you're like a first-time church attender in here, you're not a believer, or you're just investigating Christianity... Uh, the, the letter of 1 Peter, it's all one letter. It was written by an apostle named Peter, who's one of the original followers of Jesus and became a, a, a 
proclaimer of Jesus mostly to the Jews, but also some Gentiles, even as this letter shows, uh, people who weren't Israelites. Uh, he wrote this to people who were followers of Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, I would commend to you to, to read this and hear as I'm talking. What I'm going to be describing is basically what a normal life of following Jesus looks like. And so you can say, hmm, I'll consider that. I'll hear you again about this. This is what I would like. And maybe by the end of today, you would say, I, I want that all the way. But there are two big assumptions about this believing Christ-following audience that we have to get. And if we don't get it, I just don't, under, I don't think we're going to be able to relate to the text very well. And we might not be able to relate to all of 1 Peter very well. And here are the two big assumptions. Number one, the readers of the letter are exiles. The readers of the letter are exiles. If you've been here for the last several months listening to Buster preach on 1 Peter, you've heard this word a lot, the word exile. Uh, he says in ver- chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are all uh, regions in what is now Turkey, Asia Minor. And the fact that they are exiles is not simply a geographical or physical one. It really refers to the fact that anyone who is a follower of Christ is an exile in the world, in this temporary age and world that they're in. He says in chapter 1, verse 17, If you call on him as father, that's God, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, which is all the time that you're a follower of Jesus in this world. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, that is travelers, travelers passing through, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In other words, because you are not of this place, because you are a traveler through this place, don't give in to the passions of this place. You're in exile. And in all of 1 Peter, you have to assume that they're exiles because that the next blank in your outline is exiles don't belong or fit where they are. Exiles don't belong or fit where they are, and they know it. They know that they're not at home. And everybody else knows it. Everybody else knows that they don't fit. And so when you read 1 Peter, what you get is kind of a darker backdrop. It's a darker setting. It feels heavy. 1 Peter is about this group of people who Peter's already saying, hey, you got a hope coming. There are trials now. you got a hope coming. It's kept in heaven for you. It's imperishable. It's unfading. It's undefiled. And you'll have it soon. But right now, you're probably going to be grieved by various trials. There are going to be people that are come and revile you. You may get beaten. You're going to have to endure. And don't be surprised at it. He says in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. More on that later. But the picture is, is kind of bleak. The people around them are hateful and slanderous. They're debaucherous. It says in 1 Peter 4, 3, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, the, the passions of the flesh. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They speak evil of you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So there's a dark backdrop, and I just don't know that we're going to relate to the text all that well unless we understand that. Uh, There's a quote in your outline right there. 
uh, from a guy named Indy Wilson in a book called Notes from the Tilt World that really, it just depicts the way that he writes really well. He writes a lot of fiction that I enjoy. It's, it's kind of like teen magical realism, so you might not like it. Uh, but this is what he says. He says, the world is rated R and no one is checking IDs. Do not try to make it G by imagining the shadows away. Do not try to hide your children from the world forever, but do not try to pretend there's no danger. Train them. Give them sharp eyes and bellies full of laughter. Make them dangerous. And, and, and there are two quotes in here that I think are really helpful. One of them is, don't try to make the world G by imagining the shadows away. Don't try to make the world G by imagining that the, the backdrop, the exilic existence that we have isn't actually an exilic existence. That there aren't passions of the flesh and there aren't maligners. There aren't people who hate the name of Jesus. And in this, and if you read his books, you would get this. It's like the backdrop, the setting is pretty dark and gritty and nasty, but the, the protagonists, the, the, the believing characters, have sharp eyes and bellies full of laughter. They shine and they're warm. Like we have a hope and we feel full and happy about it, but our setting is not necessarily unshadowed. And I want us to feel that because... I ask the question, I ask in your outline, are we exiles? Are we exiles? And I don't mean objectively, are we exiles? If you are in Christ, if you have put your trust in him as your final righteousness and not your own good works, right? If you have said, no, my hope is in Jesus and in the life to come and the forgiveness that he offers, you are an exile. You are a temporary sojourner here. But my question is, are you an experiential exile? Do you experience your life as an exile. Because I think in 1 Peter, Peter is describing what is a normal existence of a believer. A normal existence is to feel like an exile. I don't think that there's such a vast societal disparity between first century Asia Minor and 21st century Mount Pleasant that 1 Peter doesn't apply to us. I think rather that we might not be experientially living as exiles and it's on us. So, and this is why I ask all of it and this is why I need the assumptions because last week after the sermon, Lisa and I and the kids were getting into our minivan after the sermon and Buster just preached a sermon on 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, the, pre the preceding passage. And it was talking about how basically when people revile you, you bless instead of cursing and when you bless, you obtain a blessing. But it's talking about this challenging, it's, it's like a pep talk. Don't, you bless, you'll get a blessing, you bless. It's a, it's a pre-game pump-up talk. That's what First Peter is. And I just imagine the first, in the first century, the church is getting this letter and reading this letter. And they say, it's dark out there. They might slander us. Let's get together. Let's remember our hope. We're exiles. We don't belong here. We belong there. We're going to die in just a minute. We're going to be okay. And I mean just a minute in light of eternity, not like five minutes from now. And so we get pumped up and we go out and we handle it. But, but we got in our van and it was sunny outside. Just walked out of the church. It was sunny outside. We drove home and we knew that lunch was waiting on us. Some, some of you probably just go to lunch at Bell Hall or wherever and, you know, maybe football on the TV. And all of those things are good. And I, and I don't disparage in any way a resting, sabbatical experience on a Sunday, nor... Do I disparage good gifts that God gives? But it just felt like a stark contrast between the pregame pump-up 
that you get in 1 Peter and walking out into, yeah, it kind of feels like home. Mount Pleasant. We have a sign on our stairwell. It's a, the final tenet. I've told you guys this before. It's the final tenet of our family creed. We have an eight-point family creed, and it says, we are not home yet. And we put it as big as we can right on our stairwell because we're kind of at a disadvantage in Mount Pleasant. It's in the name. Kind of at a disadvantage. Uh, both, I think, somewhat societally, but I'll get to the second assumption in a minute for this coming reason, that we think, hmm, maybe I'm not in exile, and I have to remind myself that I am. I have to remind myself that, that I'm a sojourner in an exile here and that the setting is dark, and that people are broken, and we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the, the, the powers of this present darkness. So, the readers are exiles. Secondly, and I think this is, this is, at the end of the day, this is the big difference between first century church in Asia Minor and us. The readers of the letter are on a mission. The readers of the letter are on a mission. And I don't know individually in here who's on what mission. My job is to be a professional missionary, and I still am convicted by this contrast. Okay? The readers of the letter are on a mission. In chapter 2, verse 9, in your outline it says verse 10. It's actually in verse 9. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking about his, the followers of Jesus, the church. A people for his own possession, that you may... Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why you are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The readers of the letter on a mission specifically to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so I think maybe the reason that we don't feel as much like exiles is because our mission is not as clear and sharp. It's not as defining of our existence as theirs was when they said, we're exiles here. We're sojourners here. What are we doing here? We're on mission to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so when we get a pregame pump up, instead of going, I get that pump up, I go out, I take my kids to soccer practice, which, let me be clear, I've done a lot of taking to soccer practice over the course of the fall. And I'm convicted by this because I don't want to just fall in line with the, the pleasant existence of taking, it was sometimes not so pleasant, of taking my kids to soccer practice. I want to think intentionally, and I have at points and not at other points, about who I reach with the gospel. I, my life, and we're going to go here the rest of the sermon, my life is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's not speaking this to the elders, He's saying it to everybody. They're on a mission. And what I'm saying to you is the reason they don't fit, the reason they feel like exiles is because they're on a mission for another king. They feel like exiles because they're on a mission. And that actually brings out all of the reviling. It brings out the, the discomfort. They're on a mission. They say, when Peter says, hey, hold fast. Don't give in to the passions of the flesh and bless the revilers. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. The reason that it, they experience life that way is because they're on a mission. A clear mission. Those are two assumptions about the audience that if you don't get, the, the text is not going to make any sense. So now we read the text. Verses 13 through 17. Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So I just want to walk through the text and ask a few questions of the text, okay? The, the, the three big questions are in your outline. Number one, will we be harmed? Will we be harmed when we do good? Peter is picking up on an argument. He's in the middle of an argument or putting a capstone, I guess, on an argument that he started in verse 9 of chapter 3 when he said, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless when somebody disparages you for your conduct or who you are or your faith. You bless in return. They tell you you're a fool. You love them with compassion back. And you bless in order that you may obtain a blessing. So then Peter gives this long quote from Psalm 34 that basically says, If you seek good, if you seek peace and pursue it, the eyes of the Lord are on you, the face of the Lord is on you, and it's good. Buster preached on this last week. And so he caps that off by saying, Now really... You'll be blessed because who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? There aren't a lot of people just out there to get the good guys and girls, right? There aren't people that are coming after those who seek peace and pursue it. Generally speaking, humanity loves peacemakers. It says in Proverbs 16, verse 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's just normal human life. If you seek peace... You please the Lord, you pursue it, even your enemies will be at peace with you. If you walk in line with the truth of the gospel and you bless instead of reviling, your enemies will be at peace with you. However, as soon as I read a text like this, I, my mind very, very regularly runs across the world to the South Sudan. Uh, South Sudan is a country that's been its own nation for about eight years now, became a country in 2011. Uh, In 1983, I believe it was, there was a a government put in place in Sudan before there were two countries uh, called the National Islamic Front. And the National Islamic Front made it their mission from 1983 to 2011 to systematically starve out and blow up the southern Sudanese Christian tribes. Okay, so they planted landmines everywhere and they starved the people out. And so between 1983 and 2011, approximately 3 million people, Christians specifically, were killed, starved, or blown to pieces, or surviving as amputees. And so whenever I read a text that says, hey, who's going to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good, or something like that, I always run to the South Sudan and say, how do the South Sudanese read this? How do they read this text? It says that they're sitting there with one arm or no legs, They say, who is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And what they did is they stood for Jesus for 28 years. They have an answer to that question. And I I wonder if in verse 14, Peter, maybe not, it wouldn't have been South Sudan for Peter, but something like that struck Peter in his mind according to divine inspiration. And Peter backpedals a little bit and he says, but even if you should, it's not likely that someone would harm you for doing good, but even if you should, Suffer for righteousness' sake because it happens, and it happens a lot. If you read the rest of the letter, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. Still, the text says, even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So the natural question is, well, what does it mean to be blessed? How would a a member of a a Christian tribe in the South Sudan say that they're blessed as an amputee with a starving family? 
how will they be blessed? We know that whatever it is, it's not exactly Instagram hashtag blessed. Right? It's not a Lexus in your driveway with a bow on it. I, I don't know who does that. I don't know who puts a Lexus who, for Christmas. Like, you know what? Two Lexuses in the driveway with a bow on it. I don't know. Maybe if you do that in this congregation, fine. I, uh, I preached a sermon a little while ago. And in the sermon, I mentioned that I liked Earl Grey tea. And uh, a bunch of people very kindly put Earl Grey tea on my desk, like over and again. I'm not asking for a Lexus with a bow on it in the driveway. Okay? I don't want that. I don't want that. Uh, but that's not the blessing. Buster talked about this for a while last week. Where it's not a prosperity gospel where it's like, hey, if you suffer for righteousness sake, after you suffer, then you're going to have this sweet health and wealth life. Ask the South Sudanese. What it means to be blessed, I think, is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. This is the last beatitude, I believe. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Cut and dry. Blessed is the word makarios. It means happy. And he says, Happy are those who are persecuted, who suffer for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think the blessing that comes in that moment is the blessing that says, When I am persecuted for righteousness' sake, I taste what it is to be a citizen of my true kingdom. With my true king. I taste what it is to be a citizen of heaven and not exactly a citizen of the current iteration of earth. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or to put it another way, I already quoted this, verse 13 of chapter 4. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you, also, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice to share the sufferings of your king. Of your Lord. It's, it's a very strange thing. I'm not saying it's normal. It's counterintuitive. In, in, in Acts 5 verses 40 and 41. The apostles have been preaching Jesus. Because that's what apostles do. They beat them. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So just so you understand this. They said stop talking about Jesus. They were talking about Jesus. They said, stop talking about it. They said, no, we can't stop doing that. We can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. So they laid into their backs with some sort of whips or canes or whatever. It hurt bad. And their response was rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name because they made it their ambition to show people the sufferings of Jesus and say, we're, we're citizens of his kingdom. That's a strange posture on life. A strange stance to have, but that's what it means that you will be blessed. You taste like this is right. I'm a kingdom of heaven. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And when I get reviled for loving people with the gospel of Jesus, it's right. So that's will we be harmed when we, be, we do good. Number two, why would they ask about our hope? Why would they ask about our hope? He goes on to say, after you will be blessed, he says, have no fear of them, at the end of verse 14, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. We'll come back to those last couple phrases in just a few minutes. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. And the question is, why would they ask about our hope? Because it says, be ready to make a defense if anyone asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't get that many asks. I don't get that many questions, right? 
That's not like I walk around the grocery store and I smile at someone and they stop and they're like, hmm, tell me about your hope. You smiled at me, you know? So I'm asking why would they ask for the hope or about the hope, for me to give a defense for the hope that's in you? And before I even answer that question, I want to back up and ask the question, who's asking? Who's asking? Because what it seems like in the text, in the context, is the people that are asking are actually the revilers and the skeptics, if not the courts. Because it says, have no fear of these people, nor be troubled. And then it says, respond with gentleness and respect, which seems to mean you're tempted not to because whoever's asking you is not so gentle or respectful. And then when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So it sounds like the people who are asking are kind of asking like, all right, you're kind of, you're staying, standing firm on this and you're a fool. So I need to ask you about your fool's hope to hopefully expose you. And then if I respond in such a way that demonstrates my true belief, my true hope, and my true character, then they would be put to shame. In a good way. We'll talk about that in a minute too. But why would they ask about our hope? I'm going to give you three reasons. Number one, they would ask about your hope because of your countercultural kingdom seeking. That's hyphenated, kingdom seeking. Countercultural is a really important word. That's why I have it in all three of these points. Countercultural kingdom seeking. No one is going to ask about your hope if you do your landscaping. No one's going to ask about your hope if you take out your recycling on time. No one's going to ask about your hope ever, ever, if you blend in. If you keep your head down and your nose clean, period, no one will ever ask you about your hope. No one will call you a fool for holding to your hope. He doesn't mean here, and he doesn't mean in the whole of 1 Peter, that you just be a nice person that goes kind of in line with the flow of society and people will ask you about your hope. That's not how it happens. It's countercultural kingdom seeking. He makes clear that we're exiles. He makes clear that we have a new king and a new kingdom, and that kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't look like this world at all. If you read the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, the people who are, he's speaking to are shocked because the way he describes the heavenly kingdom is so other than their ways. It's different. And so countercultural kingdom seeking is what he's about. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And what he means here, I think, is that, and maybe we get the wrong, maybe salt is the wrong analogy for us. Like, he means like spice, I think. He means like your flavor is so strong, the flavor of Christ's kingdom, those who are meek and mourning and pure in heart and persecuted for righteousness sake and still being joyful about it, those people, those people who actually believe in eternity and live like it, enough that someone would call them a fool and say, what's up with your hope? You look like a crazy person. That's what Jesus means when he says you're the salt of the earth. That, that the, the analogy I use with our college students is it's like, a hamburger I got at the Blue Door Pub in Minneapolis, Minnesota one time. It was a special one-time thing. Don't try to fly to Minneapolis and get this burger. But it was a ghost pepper cheese infused burger with jalapeno bacon and cilantro cream sauce or something. And I bit in that thing and it's the best burger I've ever had. But it was super spicy in a way that some people are going to bite in that burger and go, uh-uh, that doesn't taste like what I'm comfortable with. And I need some milk and bread and honey stacked. 
Because that blue Suvius, that was the name of it, that blue Suvius burger was so spicy because it's so other. These people are saying, I live for eternity and it's going to change the way that I live. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. But if you're bland, if you don't have any flavor, you're, nothing, you're no good but to be trampled on. That's what he, what he means. He's saying, if you just kind of blend in, nothing. And so the kind of countercultural kingdom seeking I'm thinking about would be things like thing, things that inconvenience you deeply, fostering children, really befriending the homeless and inviting them into your family. All, things, all of these things that I feel daily, weekly, monthly, yearly convicted about in my walking with the, the current of the world. Moving overseas for the sake of the gospel. Someone might tilt their head like a puppy, confused. If you have a, I don't know, just a normal, happy American dream life and all of a sudden you head over like our friends on the screen just a few minutes ago. You head over to the Middle East and give it all away. And they go, hmm, what's up with your hope? It's kind of dumb. Or we have a staff person, about to be a staff person, who's been raising support. She was just... Did great in school, walking toward the, the FBI, ready to join the FBI. Not that the FBI is wrong, it's very good, I'm very thankful for the FBI. She said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm, instead of going to the FBI to have this super respectable job that, with all my benefits, I'm going to raise support, I'm going to ask people for money so that I can go onto a campus where I no longer believe or belong and tell people about the hope of Jesus. Someone would probably say to her, in her family, in her spheres of influence, say, that's crazy talk, what are you doing? some kind of exile? <laughs> What's happening here? This happened with us, with uh, one of our extended family members. We asked for support. He said no. And we said, uh, are you just not going to support us because uh, you have multiple kids in college? He said, no, I just don't believe in what you do. Uh, it seems stupid. Why would you not give your life to making as much money as you can? And the answer is because we're exiles. And whatever we do, whether it's in the workforce or as a missionary, we give ourselves to proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Countercultural kingdom seeking. We'll move quicker now. Uh, Countercultural mercy. Countercultural mercy is the second. Why would they ask about our hope? Countercultural mercy. This is most in line with the immediate context of 1 Peter 3. You have just not repaid evil for for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, You've blessed. These people have blessed. And when they bless, people go, nobody does that. Nobody loves people who don't love them. Nobody's compassionate and sympathetic to people who don't love them. They tilt their head like a puppy and they say, almost maybe with outrage. Why would you do that? That's not right. Why would you servants submit to an unjust master? That's not right. Why would you wife stay with an unbelieving husband? That doesn't feel right. That feels unjust. He said, tell me about your hope because you seem like a fool. Like a crazy person. This is why it was so powerful. The the sit-ins of the civil rights movement were so powerful. is because you have a group of African-Americans, or really blacks and whites both. You have a, a group of people who would sit in a diner that's supposed to be whites only. Sit there and then be manhandled and thrown out of the diner and never revile in return. Never. Fight back. Dogs sicked on them. Hoses aimed at them. Never fought back. In that moment, someone might say, what is your hope? You sure seem like a fool. This is outrageous that you would do that. 
What's your hope? And hopefully, when that happens, somebody alongside the revilers, maybe the revilers themselves, will look at that and say, that tastes good, that tastes salty, that tastes spicy. That's a different kind of kingdom than I know. I don't like our kingdom as much as that kingdom. And when that person scorned them, they were merciful in return. That looked like a sane person. That looked like sanity. This tastes right. That person looks like a fool now that was reviling them. That's the context. And then finally... The third, why would they ask about our hope, is countercultural proclamation. Countercultural proclamation. I already told you in chapter 2, verse 9, this is the mission. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And countercultural proclamation really undergirds all of this, even if you are a really counterintuitive kingdom seeker who does pretty radical things with your life. Even if you are a radically merciful person who's like a, a counterintuitively, counterculturally merciful person, if you're not proclaim, proclaiming the name of Jesus the whole time, saying, he's my king. I'm a citizen of his kingdom. I love him. He has given me life. He has made us a people for his own possession. I, I, I hadn't received mercy, but now I have. If you don't speak that way about him, people still probably aren't going to ask you. I don't think that what's happening in verse 15 is this is the first time that someone has asked them for their hope. Or the first time that they've heard about their hope. I think these people have been proclaiming the whole time. That's what they do. They speak their king because his name, Jesus' name is the dividing line. Let's be honest. When you talk about Jesus, someone's going to say, are you trying to convert me? And that's where 1st century Asia Minor and 21st century Mount Pleasant are probably pretty similar. People aren't looking for you to try to convert them to the gospel of Jesus. The love of Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, the hope of heaven. And so when they say, are you trying to convert me? They're saying that because you've used the name of Jesus and your answer, however you want to say it in as kind and compassionate a way you want to say it with as much gentleness and respect as you want to use is, yes, yes, I'm trying to convert you. Of course, I want you to spend forever in bliss and not apart from Jesus. I want you to be done with the pains and anxieties of your life that you can hand to him. Of course, I want, I, I, I want you to be converted. But people who know, if you are a person who's known as an attempted converter, they will revile you. They will revile you. Even if you're a peacemaker and a peace seeker and a blesser in the face of reviling. So, we move back a little bit. Uh, the, the third question is how can we keep from being fearful or troubled? I just want to say one or two things before we get there, which is this. Um, when it says... In verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I don't think that our readiness to give a defense is primarily a statement of our apologetic sharpness. And what I mean by that is like your ability to give a good philosophical or evidential or historical evidence, uh, uh, argument for why Jesus is real. I think it implies that. And I think everybody in the room should be able to articulate what their hope is and why they believe it well. You should, everybody in the room, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should at least move down the path of being able to say, this is why I believe in Jesus. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on in this text. I think this text is not so much about our sharpness with our evidences but, and our arguments, but rather our courage and our groundedness in the love of Christ. So that when those people come and revile your crazy hope because they hate the idea of Jesus and all that he would take from them, will you be ready when they come at you to be as courageous as you might feel right now and not to cower in response? Because we all know that feeling when you're around somebody, hopefully we do, when you're around somebody and you want them to know about Jesus. 
but there's this visceral feeling that's like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to make this at best awkward. And at worst, I'm going to lose my relationship with this person. We know it, right? I'm going to lose my relationship with this person. And if they can come at you and you're grounded in the love of Jesus and you know yourself to be in exile and you know your hope and you feel that courage and you know that they can have the gospel, they come at you and you are unaffected by their slander, except maybe with sympathy and compassion. The revilers will be put to shame. And I don't mean like public humiliation. I mean people watching will see that they're not right. And, and it says in chapter 2, verse 12, they will there, hopefully the revilers themselves will glorify God on the day of visitation because they say that this is all real. And we really, really believe it. That description is what I would call the normal Christian life. As we step out in proclamation, countercultural kingdom seekers, counterculturally merciful, always proclaiming, non-negotiably proclaiming, and then the context fits. Because then we go, uh-oh, people might harm me. Otherwise, you might be sitting in here going, I don't know who's going to harm me. I do my landscaping. You know, my HOA is not going to harm me. I'm all right. Right? And I feel the same way. I think there are sometimes university administrations and any student that I, I confront in any way these days. But sometimes I feel the same way. I'm like, who's going to harm me? Who's going to revile me? And this is why. Our problem is not, this is in your outline, our problem is not generally that we don't share our faith with gentleness and respect. What he tells us is when that person comes and they revile you and they slander your fool's hope and you come back and you say, hey, it's real, I'm going to tell you why I believe it and I love you anyway. That's the gentleness and respect that Peter's calling for. But our problem is not generally that we don't share our faith with gentleness and respect, it's that we don't share our faith. I want that to sink in. So we don't share our faith at all. On the spectrum of aggressive, maybe on social media this is true, but on the spectrum of aggressive and sharing your faith all the time and timid and never sharing your faith, most of us tend to be over here. Most of us tend to value a relationship and keeping it above the proclaiming of the kingdom, the king of heaven and his gospel. So I'm saying that the normal Christian life is to proclaim and risk the relationships on some level, even as we exercise love and discernment and peacekeeping along the way. Which leads us to the conclusion, how can we keep from being fearful or troubled? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Peter says, and this is the, the answer from the text. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. It literally means right there, sanctify Christ. It means set him apart, set him up here as holy. He is other, he is Lord. And so when you put the two things on the scales, and really the two things on the scales are the approval of the people that you see and touch and the approval of the one in whom all things hold together. The one who can, at worst, kill your body and the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. You set him apart as holy, and you say he is other, better, ultimate, and he rises up where this person, I guess it's on the scales that would go that way, but he rises up, and, and their approval grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And once you understand his position and why his opinion matters more than anybody else's, at that moment you look and you realize that he suffered once. It says in verse 18, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. So now, not only does his opinion matter, but you are in his good graces, the one who holds all things together. You are in his good graces. And even though you don't now see him, you love him. And and even though you don't see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And when you, you exalt him to that place, then you turn back and you go, I'm okay. I'm an exile on the earth. I can love you and not fear whatever's coming because I, I have a fixed hope in the one who's purchased my soul and whose opinion matters infinitely more than yours. And the hard part, and we all know the hard part, is most of us in the room would say that right now. Most of us in the room would say that. We'd say, yeah, I believe that his opinion matters more than the opinion of people. But I think our priority system betrays that statement sometimes because what we really want is to keep our relationships smooth and to not feel awkward and to not let those people revile us because reviling hurts. It doesn't feel good. Uh, And so what we have to do is fight to set as holy the one that we don't see over and above and against in some ways those whom we do see. So we've got to put Jesus in front of your face. I regularly run back to the, the reality of the resurrection. This is how I became a believer to begin with. I say, it's real. There was an empty tomb in 33 AD. Jesus, all that he said about himself was real and he proved it when he rose from the dead and everything that came after. It's real, it's real, it's real, it's real. I don't see him, I don't touch him, but he's real. And the more real, the more sub- substantial he becomes in my heart, in my mind, set apart as Lord, the less fear I have. And the better he tastes, that I don't just believe in him, I love him, even though I don't see him. I, the better he tastes when I go, man, his love and his approval, everything that he is for me is so good that whatever I could get from their approval just pales in, pales in comparison and my fear diminishes. So setting him apart as holy really means believing in him, loving him, and asking God for help to do so. And then, then, To finish the text, you'll be able to suffer, if it is God's will, for doing good. And it might be God's will that you suffer for doing good, and that will be, to bring it full circle, a blessing to share in his sufferings. Normal Christianity. So just to end with an application, the one application in your outline is to share your hope. We've been talking about your three for a long time. Three people that are in your mind and in your heart that you're praying for, that you're thinking, how will I speak the gospel to them? And I'm saying, this week, if you have an interaction with one of your three, share your hope. And you might say, but what if the perfect opportunity doesn't come up? Never does. (laughs) Share your hope. Share with them, come what may, because you're in exile. You're on a mission. They, They need to know the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are wonderful. You are wonderful. And you have given us a living hope, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, imperishable, unfading, undefiled. And we will see you Your glory will be revealed in all of our sufferings and all of our sharing your sufferings will only make that reunion the sweeter. I pray that in here you would give us the, the, just increase our faith, increase our belief, increase our, our love for you and our understanding, especially of your love for us. 
Help us to set you apart in our hearts as holy, that we would not have fear of them nor be troubled, and that they all will glorify you on the day of visitation through us, in our words, in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name.